Good. Yeah, start again. Do you want to do the intro music again? There we go. The <laughs> I'm going to talk over the whole thing. I'm going to talk over the whole thing. I'm going to talk over the intro music. I'm going to sing over the intro music. Uh, I've gone back to back weeks of not hitting the record button when I've started a podcast because I was so excited to get into it, which is why our guest has just kind of. Who'd you have last week? Uh, I've had I've had Dean White, I've had Liam Spence, and I just I get pumped up and forget to hit the red button. So, yeah. um, so I, I practiced my intro, had all my gags written. Anyway, on this episode four of the uh, Move the this Mountain, going to be way better, by the way. Yeah, well, you just keep laughing in the same place as you laughed last time. We've got Australian baseball royalty. It was a big running. I, Pete was in stitches. He was laughing at that. I just completely cocked the whole thing up. Um, Peter Moylan's with us, yeah. and um, I really appreciate it. And um, it's not often that you do get Australian baseball royalty on your podcast when you're early doors in. So thanks very much, mate. Um, the I guess the thing that we wanted to start with is what you're actually up to now. As I said uh, in the first go-round of the podcast, it appears that you've got about 90-plus uh, part-time jobs, and I had a really cool superannuation <laughs> consolidation joke there as well. So um, completely rogered all of this stuff. Um, so what are you doing with yourself, mate? How, how do you keep yourself busy? Nothing. I don't know where you get your info from. I'm just sitting here. Uh, no, I've got uh, I've got a bunch of jobs going. Yes, um, finished my career in 2018 and and uh, and left for Europe to to run away from retirement and spent a good couple of months over there, and then came back and started working television straight away, which was um, interesting. Um, and all new, obviously. It's all live. It's all. There's no cough buttons. There's no. You got to watch exactly what you say at every minute. Um, and as you said, you get run sheets, and it's all pretty measured. Um, and then I got offered a job not long ago, a couple of months ago, with John Boy Media, which is a new up and coming uh, media company. Uh, and I just do a podcast every Monday with them, with a lady by the name of Kelsey Wingett, who was a former Brave sideline reporter. So. That and I'm also manager of the Melbourne Aces now. And so there was a couple of years back where you were you were coming back from injury or one of the injuries, and and you were signed a minor league deal as both pitcher and player co- coach. Coach, um, did yeah the coaching the professional coaching itch has that been scratched or what happened with sort of following that avenue? Well, that was just the only way that I could get back into an organisation. Yeah, if right. I'm being completely honest. Um, I'm recovering from second Tommy John and I was at the point where I was throwing uh, fastballs at 100% but I hadn't snapped off any breaking balls yet so teams weren't willing to uh, uh, sign me based on what I was able to do so um, a friend of mine within the Braves organisation called me and said hey, I've got a proposition for you um, and by this stage I was probably 11 or 12 months into my rehab so I was getting to the point where I was getting antsy I hadn't been around a field for a while um, I rehabbed it on my own with Chris Medlin so um, I hadn't been to a field hadn't seen other guys hadn't been out to hang out and I'd missed that interaction so when he gave me the opportunity to be in a clubhouse again albeit as a coach but I still got to be in a clubhouse um, I, I jumped at it so um, he said we're going to pay you as a coach you're going to do your rehab work whenever you're not coaching. Um, but when you are coaching, we expect you to be a coach. So I was a coach. So I filled out reports. I went on the bus. I went on road trips. I sent in reports to the pitching coordinators. And I was I was living life as a coach while also rehabbing my own 
Tommy John surgery. Um, and the goal was always to come back because I felt really good. But the fallback plan was if I didn't make it back, then I was going to get a leg up into a coaching role, which was something that I thought I was going to do three years ago. Yeah, right. So the uh, the media side of things, um, obviously you're a naturally outgoing guy, but is that just feet to the fire, good luck, mate? Or how much training and, and um, preparation went mm. into that career? That, well, um, they could tell from, I guess, Everyone that I've spoken to since I took the job has basically said that they could tell from the way that I did interviews or I would I would um, speak during interviews that I would be pretty good at this or at least have some fun with it. So I was contacted pretty much as soon as I retired and offered the job, whereas a lot of guys will have to do like a screen test or whatever. They said, we just want you. And I was like, okay, cool. So first day I show up at four o'clock expecting there to be someone there to go, all right, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. This is what we expect from you. Look at this camera, look at that camera, do this, that, this, and the other. Uh, this is your sound button, all of it. I was expecting a basically two-hour training session before I got on air, and it was just a regular production meeting where they said, we're going to talk about Dansby Swanson and this, that, and the other, and there's the camera, and here's a microphone. So, um, and... To make it even worse was I, I, I thought they were playing like a fucking prank on me, like a, a rite of passage kind of prank my first day because I'm supposed to do this live interview with Tom Glavin and Jeff Francoeur and my, my sound completely goes. So they're asking me questions and all I can see is their fucking lips moving and, I'm, and I can't hear a thing. So I'm smiling like a nutty just sitting there looking at the camera. <laughs> And live television, there's nothing I could do. And I'm like, are you guys fucking razzing me? What? No, sorry. And then they finally got my sound working. So that was panic station. And I'm a, I'm a bit of a sweater that I found out too, Stu. So that's, that's fun. So I'll send you a video after this of 90 degree heat in the middle of summer in Atlanta, Georgia with the thousand percent humidity. And I'm sitting there in pants and a fucking polo with 17 fans around me trying to blow the sweat off my face. So it's, uh, it's been a fun experience, but I, I, I'm actually really, really enjoying it. Got to go to the All-Star game the other day, which was an experience that I didn't get to do as a player. Um, I would have if there was a second-half All-Star, but we won't get into that. Um, when you had all your body it hair... It was cool. When you had all your body hair lasered off, they didn't do the sweat glands at the same time? <laughs> uh, I, use, I use clippers on a bi-weekly basis to this day, Stuart. <laughs> the old chest rug. Um, so... Yeah. Um, you and I, we, we've actually known each other a long time because we both came Very long time. through a, um, a pretty cool baseball club in Western Australia, South Perth. And I actually have, I've got a couple of Peter Moylan stories and one I'm pretty proud of and the other I'm not so proud of. Um, the second story- Will I be proud of either uh, of them or is this just-, is this just <laughs> No, no, I did. I, look, I've soundboarded this- Because there's a few that I'm probably not- No, 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 no. I've, I soundboarded- I sounded the boarded the one I'm not so proud with my wife, and she said you kind of look more like the dickhead on this one. So I was like, okay, okay, well I'll tell right. it. So, so the first one which I'm proud of, everybody's heard the Peter Moll and you know origin story, sales rep, blah blah blah, big deal. Who cares? You know, it's not that important, not that cool. People have done that before, but At all. what sure. what has been failed to mention is what got you signed the first time because if you didn't wash out the first time around, none of this happens. So. I actually played an instrumental role in this, and I'll, let me explain. So we were at a practice, 
And you are best described as a high-energy guy when you are in that 17-, 18-year-old range. And you would just sort of bounce around yeah. talking to every single person on, on the field. And you came heading in my direction and I'll just briefly describe the look. So you had the spectacles that J.K. Rowling has said on record were inspiration for Harry Potter. Um, Correct. And you were wearing your hat in such a way. It was like you were wearing a bottle cap. So you had your hat <laughs> way back and a massive, massive amount of hair and fringe coming out the front, massive cabbage out the front. And you walked over to me what and I said, mate, hide the hair, pull your hat down. <laughs> and you, you adjusted your hat, next thing you know, sign a pro contract. So I've actually taken full credit for you signing the first deal because I taught you how to wear a hat. And had that on my. I LinkedIn. remember that. Yep, there you go. Had that on my LinkedIn bio for quite some time. Um, didn't get any credit, any any credit for it, but I just wanted to get that out on the record that I was the guy who taught you how to wear a hat properly. Now the second story. What percentage do you think that? What, what percentage do you think that deserves of my original signing? Oh, no, mate, I do it for the good of the game. That's why we're here. Um, oh, just that's why. See, that's why we're that's why we're still friends for this yeah, day. Mate, love of the game. Just wanted to help a young guy out. Okay, so Wonderful. the next story. I'm not so proud of. Um, we, you were pretty good on the hill. You could hit a little bit as well. And we, I'm pretty sure it was a finals game and we were playing against the Evil Empire, the Perth Baseball Club, who just routinely mollywopped us year in, year out. I think we lost three finals in a row against them, just demolished us. And I'm pretty sure we were playing against them and you were starting the game as the, as the pitcher. And I, my role on the team was bench jockey and probably the biggest responsibility I had was playing catch with the left fielder in between innings. Um, but I thought it would be an amazing idea if I was able to blow a bubble with gum and stick it on the top of your hat, which I executed <laughs> to absolute perfection. The only chink or the only, the only downfall to this plan was – I didn't anticipate that you wouldn't notice and then run out to start the game as the starting pitcher <laughs> with a bubble on top of your head, which you did. Uh, don't, re- don't recall how the inning played out. I don't, I don't have a great uh, recollection of sort of inning-by-inning inning performance. But what I do recall is we, we had the pleasure of playing with a guy who was potentially the biggest gamer that I'd ever played with in, in Australia. And he took things pretty seriously. And in between innings, I think he was leading off, but he took the time to walk up and down the dugout, absolutely seething. Which one of you <laughs> fucking idiots fucking thought that was a good idea? And he didn't say it as articulately as that. And <laughs> there was a collection of us at the end of the dugout kind of both pissing ourselves laughing and trembling in absolute fear that he would find out that I did it and he would tear me apart. So that was the – they're my two stories. One, yep, I think made a bit of a difference and the other one, I was just like, what was I thinking doing that in a final series? And um, <laughs> anyway, so that that was that. Uh, how old would, would I – was that before I'd been over to the States or was that after I'd been over to the States? I – I because there was two there was two different Peter Moylands. Oh, I think you, I think it was right on the cusp of you signing. So I, I actually think because you were hot right. right then, and I don't think you'd been away, and you were just, yeah, you know, this is our guy. He's pretty good, and but he's right. seventeen or eighteen, and yeah, we're not we don't know what we're going to get here, but 
yeah, it was um, – you were throwing pretty hard at the time. And, um, yeah, we I think we still got smashed. But um, anyway, it was yeah stupidity oh, <laughs> at its highest. Um, so we've put that to bed. Um, I was kind of keen to kick off um, cause, because the game's evolving and, and you actually, in your second go-around – um, signing in 2006 that was on the cusp of you know Moneyball had, had come out in 2003 and then the game's evolution mm. really took off in the, the time you were a professional baseball player. So I was kind of interested to hear your thoughts on you hit pro ball as a guy who kind of came out of yep. nowhere again and then, you know, it, it isn't just about playing catch. It's this the game just takes off and your experience across your career in how technology kind of helped you and, and allowed you to develop and, and what you were seeing from a training and conditioning perspective and yeah just kind of keen for you to riff on that side of the game yeah well the I can say one thing the changes between when I first got here and 2000 and probably 12 or 13 were minimal as soon as analytics hit uh, actually, fourteen because I was in spring training with the Astros, oh, yeah. and they were yeah. the first team to really kind of grab hold of it. And we, I remember we were in spring training. We have a meeting. Bo was a manager at that stage, and he stood up and he said, "Right, this is what we're going to be doing. We're going to be shifting like crazy. Um, so we don't want to hear any complaints, any arguments. This is how it's going to be. We're going to try this." Um, and I had never made the team, so I never got to play that way. But from that point and to now, the game has changed so much. It's just everybody's so smart. Everybody's everybody's got a plan. Everybody knows what they're looking for, and they're all looking for the same thing. Um, it's the game has completely evolved into almost like a, a real life fantasy baseball experience. Um, except there's that human element that often gets overlooked. Um, we are seeing some of the best athletes that I've ever seen play the game right now. Um, I've, I've played with Chipper Jones. I've played with Andrew Jones. I, I caught them both at the end of their careers. Um, I've seen Trout. I've seen the best of the best. But the amount of talent, the amount of young talent under the age of 23 that are gracing us at the moment is absolutely insane, Stu. It's it's just like Tatis, Soto, Acuna, uh, you name them. It is- Otani, like uh, the, the greatest player in the game right now is a guy that does both things. Mm. Yes, that's ridiculous. Think about that. Think about that, dude. Like, I, I consider myself like I've considered myself a pretty decent hitter until I came over here, and I got my first at bat in spring training, and I was off Woody Williams in two thousand and six, and I'm fresh off my Aussie team, like uh, Vic team, Claxton Shield hitting, so I was pretty locked in, and I took in a bat and I hit a double off the wall in spring training and the, and the bullpen went fucking nuts. And I'm like, this is fucking great. Now, Woody Williams was throwing 84 miles an hour in spring training. He didn't give a shit. He'd already made the team. He's getting paid. I'm like, this is the big leagues. I'm going to fucking own it. I'm already hitting doubles like a fucking, I'm <laughs> Ken Griffey Jr. So, uh, I don't get another at bat for two years. 
And the next time I see live pitching, it's 96, and, and I'm just absolutely gobsmacked that anyone can make contact. Um, and that was when 96 was impressive. Now 96 is fucking the old 88. It's like everybody throws 100, and it's, it's just how it is. You just got to react. And I think the... Uh, uh, I think the biggest impact in the game that's happened in the last, honestly, the last 15 years after steroids um, is this sticky substance. It's, it completely changed the way the game was played for 18 months. And I'm glad that they've outlawed it. I wish they would allow some things, but I'm glad they've outlawed it because it's, it's shone, it's shone a light. Is that a word? Shone? Shun? Shone. 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 It's, the light has been turned on. And a spotlight has been pointed towards the guys that shouldn't be in the big leagues because they were cheating. Um, the guys that were just using sunscreen and rosin, they're still able to get the job done right now. Is the guys that were such big tacky guys, they're they're struggling to find any control, and they're, and they're walking everyone, and they're giving up hits because they're throwing cement next to sliders and and shitty curveballs. So, so the, this um, that's honestly been the biggest change. The sticky stuff. It, when you, is that you know you're saying they shouldn't be in the big leagues is that like is that a bit of hyperbole there or is that legit like there's guys who just wouldn't have a big league career if they weren't putting glue on their fingers and throwing a baseball I uh, I don't know if they would not have it what all I'm saying is that you know there's been guys that have the only reason they're in the big leagues right now is because they have that one pitch that they're able to spin at 3,000 miles per yeah, hour yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and it's a and it's a fucking eighty two mile an hour curveball that no one can touch, mm. or an eighty six mile an hour curveball that no one can touch. So there are those guys like a, that that Kieran Neck or Kieran Check or that closer from uh, Cleveland, the the young kid that was he was the kid that got caught effectively given his thumb of his glove a hand job trying to get as much sticky out of the inside of it that he could. Um, that's what sparked this whole thing was him getting caught putting that much shit on his fingers, and now. You look at the numbers, and I've asked a lot of people to send me everything they can get because I'm very interested in it. And the the guys that have had the biggest drop in not only spin but in actual performances as well uh, are guys that I I couldn't give a shit about. Like that's you sh- you don't deserve to be in a big league. The just kind of touching on the sort of evolution of the technology is it you know you used to hear stories about guys like oh I don't pay attention to the scouting report I just show and go is that Obviously, True. a superstar can do that you know, nowadays. Whatever, True. but I'm assuming. Just it's- tell me what he's got. Like it'll be, it'll be, and even now, right? I'm sorry to cut you off, but that would be Chipper Jones. Chipper Jones would be like, just tell me what he's got. Have I faced him before? Let me see my bat against him. He'd go in the video and he'd watch other guys like him and how he pitched other guys, and that's it. And then he's he's ready to go. Mm. Carry on as you as you were going to say. Go. Well, no, I was because I'm assuming that. For players coming through, it's like it's non-negotiable. This is the technology. This is the information we have. You need to pay attention to it. And you can't just. I'm sure you could sit through a meeting and kind of glass, you know, glaze over. But it, you know, it was interesting. But so here's I, the interesting thing about that, right? Here's the interesting thing about that. I thought the same thing. I thought it was like a free for all. It was like the teams captured all the information. They handed it to dudes. They read it. They they knew about it. They. But I, I have a feeling that that a lot of the teams are getting all the information captured, but they're only spinning out certain bits to the players themselves on the minor league side. Um, right. Okay. So, and team, teams know exactly, and 
that's the other thing. So for the last two years, all you've heard about scouts looking for is guys with high spin, right? Mm, yep. Guys that can spin it. Well, I wanted someone that can spin it, you know, who's guy that can elevate their fastball um, with a high spin rate so I can throw that fastball top of the zone at 96 and no one can touch it, right? Well, the only reason guys are getting those spin rates was because of the shitty sticky stuff. So there are teams out there that are throwing sticky stuff, like their pitching development places are, are throwing sticky stuff or were, not anymore, but that, that was where it was coming from. Teams were, were getting it themselves. It was, if you, if you were not cheating, you're not trying. Kind of like before 2004, if you weren't taking steroids, you were, you, you were behind the eight ball. Mm. Um, so it was, there was a lot of people doing it. And I, I, there was a thing that I didn't I, – we, we, so we spoke to Liam Spence last week who got drafted in the fifth round Australian kid who was playing in the SEC, which is arguably the well, – I know exactly who he is, yeah. yeah. It's the best conference in college baseball in the US. And he's facing yeah. Kumar Rocker and, and Jack Leiter who are dialing it up to 100. And I'm like, how do you how do you prepare for that? You know, like the traditional BP where you stand there and some, you know, 50-year-old coach kind of lobs them in there and allows you to groove it and you just unload. How do you prepare for that? And he's like, well, you get the scouting report that says this guy will throw 100 miles an hour 60% of the time in this area. And he goes, but you kind of can't. That's all well and good knowing that. But <laughs> you still have to be ready that if the guy misses and it, it's in a different location, you've still kind of got to be able to react. And you just kind of like – there's so right. much information available, but at the end of the day, you still kind of have to be able to pull the trigger. You still have to be able to, to do certain things. And it's that it's that balance of, you know, the, the sticky stuff is there's no there's no smarts in that. It's like let's make the ball – let's make my hand sticky so I can grip it better and throw it harder and spin it more. There's, that, that's right. that's exactly. still physical. That's an advantage that the hitter can't get. Mm. It's the advantage that the hitter can't get, and that's why it's unfair. Mm. And that, it's, sorry. it's turning them into the player that they wouldn't have been. So how long do you think it's been prevalent? Like it's always been around, but when when did it really take off? Right, so there, there's a difference, right? So there, with pine tar, you increase the spin by about 150 uh, RPMs, right? With sunscreen and rosin, you increase the spin by about 100 RPMs compared to what it would be with nothing at all, right? With the sticky stuff, you can go up to 450, 500 RPMs more spin on fastball and on curveball. So, and even more than that on, on off-speed pitches. So you, you're talking about turning someone that didn't wasn't going to be a major league pitcher with the spin that they could generate with just the shit that everybody was using for 50 years. They were in the big leagues because they had to get this sticky shit that's even more. It's, have you seen it? It's, it's legitimately like a spider web once you try and separate your fingers of it. It's is it, just it's is, is ungodly. That, is that the stuff that NFL receivers glue on, put onto their gloves and they can barehand a you know one hand of football? Is that the same stuff? The spider tack? I don't know. Uh, I think that the spider tack, from my understanding, it, it was a weightlifting, like a world strongman weightlifting thing, where they would put it on their hands to be able to pick up the big fucking stones. That's what I uh, thought it was. Yeah, right. Um, I. I I assume that you couldn't palm those st- those fucking things still, but they are also generating a lot of spin for guys. That that uh, yeah, that it's. I have never actually tried. I tried Pelican uh, in Australia because I couldn't get the right mix of sunscreen and rosin in Australia. So I would try a little bit of Pelican on my um, on my middle finger, but it was mainly just to be able to, to be able to grip my slider. I've got small hands and I tell the story all the time I, I never needed anything 
from 2006 to 2013 or 2012, and then all of a sudden the baseball's changed, and I well I would went through the same routine of just grabbing rosin and some sweat off my forehead, and I couldn't penetrate the baseball. It was like the leather had been stretched further, or or it, they used a different leather or something. I couldn't get. Normally, I could get the sweat to penetrate, and I could move the skin of the ball a little bit, and you could feel that you could actually get some friction. Whereas in 2013, I, I, it was like it was a cue ball. And I was in Arizona for the first time, so I was a, I was assuming it was just the Arizona uh, thin air, and and I just had to get used to it. But then I went to AAA, and it was happening all over AAA as well, and I was just a frustrated mess. That's when someone said, try sunscreen and rosin. The... Um not everyone's had the opportunity to hold a major league baseball, but um, the one thing that really stood out to me is just there's no seams on a major league baseball. Like it's bizarre. Really not. Yeah, and I, it's kind of you yeah. grab a baseball in Australia and it's like your grandmother crocheted them on. They're that fat and thick. And <laughs> it's like, but ba- yeah. major league baseball is just smooth. It's unbelievable. And and um, So – and that's what I explain to people. So – Everybody says, oh, well, <clears throat> a lot of these guys have had success on the way up, not with no sticky stuff. And I'm yeah, yeah, because the baseballs are completely different. You can grip, you can grip a, a curveball, you can grip a curveball with any of those balls in, in State League or, or even the ABL, uh, all the Asian, all the Asian tournaments, um, all the, all the European tournaments, you can grab, all those baseballs are the same. It's just the big league baseballs are so hard and so slick compared to any other baseball I've ever felt. Mm. Um, you've established your bona fides as a physicist, so thanks for that. Um, it'd be yes, good to you're more than welcome. It'd, it'd be good, <laughs> Professor Peter Moylan. Um, it'd be good to. Oh, you're an asshole. It'd be good to <laughs> s- sidestep. You haven't changed. That's the beautiful part, Stuart. You have not fucking changed. Stay true to yourself. One man. bit. Got to stay true. One hundred percent. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. The I just want to sidestep to I guess I, something that's you're obviously interesting because you've got a podcast talking about prospects and whatnot. But one of the things that kind of is behind the platform we're soon to launch and this podcast is, you know, why are we behind the game in Australia? Now, the obvious answer is there's less people playing baseball here, but we produce pretty good athletes. And I'm, you know, you're now sort of enmeshed in or immersed in um, the world of prospects with your podcast, um, Farm to Fame. But I was interested for yeah. a guy who and who now lives in the US, uh, but who is coaching in Australia in the in in our summers. What, what's what are you seeing is the difference? Why are we not producing more professional baseball players? I think it's a combination of. Um, a lack of availability to travel ball and the just the amount of sheer games that, that are available to kids in this country um, from all ages. You've got travel ball teams from the ages of seven right the way up through high school um, and every kid is on a travel ball team and they are playing tournaments all year round in Florida or Texas or Arizona or somewhere where the weather's good all year round and these kids play and they play nonstop all the time. Some kids are playing eight to ten games on a weekend over three different age levels because they're good enough and because there's the availability to them. So 
Um, there's just not the volume of, of, of facilities. There's not the volume of grounds. I mean, there's fields everywhere around me. It's insane. I, within, within as far as I can hit five drivers, which is about 500 yards, um, I have six baseball fields next, near my house. Full? It's everywhere, Stuart. Yeah. Like it's and it's the it's the from it's and it's the parents are are obsessive and the parents are under the impression and it's and it's these it's these and I don't want to throw places like Perfect Game under the bus, but it's places like Perfect Game that have that have made it made parents feel like that's their only way to get their kids drafted is if um, they do all these extra things and go see coaches twice a week on their own and then also train with the travel ball club and also play at their high school. And it's like, it's just so much, man. And what's happening is we're getting cream of the crop players, but we're also missing out on a lot because they just get burnt out. Like it's, they're just like, fuck this. I am, I, I, I like uncle. Yeah. I don't like baseball anymore, yeah. but, but the, the, the level of talent that I'm seeing at, really young ages would blow you away over here. It's like, and, and it's the baseball smarts. It's not just what they're able to do physically. It's, it's their thinking. It's their, it's, they know what they want before the play starts. Like everyone teaches you from the age of five, you know, think about where they're going to, the ball is going to go and react and, and know what you to do if the ball's hit to you every single pitch. These kids at eight years old, nine years old, know how to do that. Yeah, well, down here, we've. I'm pretty sure that you can now play t-ball as a teenager, and um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I'm not sure that that. You know, you might just be able to drop bombs off a off a tee, but I'm not sure that once you kind of get to a certain age, if you're not hitting a ball that's moving, I'm not sure that you can catch catch up and catch on. So, you so. Know, I have friends of mine that have uh, – I've been watching them and their kids from the age of about six, five or six, and they are in – they have been in coach pitch from six, and I think they're just starting to get into kid pitch now, which is at age eight or nine. Mm. So that, that seems to be the difference. If we're, if we're allowing kids to play t-ball, and look, if it's – if it's what the kids want to do because they don't want to play baseball, then okay, great. But if it's if it's eventually their plan to play baseball, then I wouldn't suggest playing people until the age of fourteen. Mm. And uh, you know, like it's interesting because you know, as a veteran, you know, like you know, in my day, you, right. you'd play a winter sport and a summer sport, and that was it. And it seems yeah. like when earlier and earlier kids are just playing one sport, which leads to the burnout side of things. But then on the other side of that, I read it. You know, I've, got, oh, I've, specialized. I've got two daughters um, and because um, they say athletes produce uh, females, but um, the – I've got three, yeah. Yeah, well, there you go. See, case in point. Um, but there was an interesting study that I think it was the, the US women's soccer team, very few of those players had specialized in soccer – only and it, they'd gone and played multiple sports and obviously that prevents burnout but it pr- produces different levels of athleticism so i'm sure whilst it's producing but i also think i also think that's just because 
there's there's so many different sports that you have the opportunity to play. And I wouldn't think that soccer would be on the forefront of a lot of American kids' wants. I think that would be like choice number two. Mm. If I can't make it as a baseball player, I don't know. That could just be being, a, being an asshole towards soccer players too, but I don't mean any disrespect towards anyone that's played soccer. I just think that you look at the big four, and even ice hockey is oh, – actually, soccer's probably just as popular. I take that back. I take that back. But you, I, you should see the you should see the local league here, the the United. Holy, holy shit, they sell out. Seventy five thousand people show up, so I'll, I take that back. Mm. Um, so I think yeah, the the evolution of the game. Like we just you know st- still down here. You've got a kid who plays once a week um, club ball, and then they gear everything yep. up and they go play a national tournament. For now, it's only a week. I think it used to be two weeks. I, I don't know. I never made one of those, but. Um, you know, then you go and play against the best in the country for a week. Then we select an Australian team, but then we shut it down um, because we head into winter. And then we ramp it back up again and we send a team off to an international tournament to try and compete. Like it, it just, we're so backwards in our, the way things are, are, are in place to be elite performers. And you're just relying on kids' elite athleticism or a couple of tools to be snagged. And, and, there's less and less kids signing out of Australia because if you're a pro team, why would you risk it? Why would you bring a kid from the other side of the country when you've got so much in your backyard and, and surrounding countries where you can sign them for the same amount of money and they've played baseball since they could walk? That's uh, that's well, that's the- what I'm afraid of. <clears throat> that's what I'm afraid. I'm afraid that the development over here is going to be so far ahead that teams are going to stop valuing anybody from from Australia. And I, I mean, even. You look at the kids that are coming over from Japan. Like the, you look at the development. Otani's the best player in the world right now. He's not even American. So, um, granted, Liam Hendricks is the best closer in the world right now. He's the best relief pitcher in the world right now. So he's Australian. So that's got to give us some sort of street cred, right? Mm, well, you'd hope so. But the other thing that yeah. Australians used to be able to get away with as well was just great, great clubhouse guy, and you know the personality players. Yeah, it's and, not valued either. Yeah. So that's. That, I say this all the time. Like I said the other day that part of my advantage and part of the reason why I struggled so not struggled, that the reason why I I I preferred to sign early was because part of my advantage was getting in front of these people and showing my personality and, and you know, showing value, not just what I can do on the field, but what I can do inside the clubhouse, which uh, coaches see, but a lot of the analytics people don't measure it and don't value it as, as much as, as other people do. But um, I feel like there's there's still value in it, even even now. Well, that's the uh, the great unquantifiable is clubhouse chemistry. And, you know, moment, people say momentum doesn't exist, but clubhouse chemistry certainly does. Mm. And, you know, it's pretty hard to piece that together. Um, the other thing I was interested in, now hindsight's a wonderful thing, but <laughs> – and it's easy to say, oh, well, I would do this differently, but you're still 17, 18, 19. Like, if you had your time again, or if you, you could counsel, that's probably better to say, if you, what counsel would you give a 17, 18, 19-year-old Australian before they set off to embark on a pro career? Like, what, what are the key things that they would need to focus on and hone in to be successful? It's quite easy. Shut your mouth and open your ears. You don't know everything. You think you do. But you don't know everything just yet. There are people out there. Not everybody's out there to, to compete against you. There are people out there to help you. 
and there are people that are going to try and help you succeed, listen to them. If it doesn't work for you, still listen to them. Show them the respect of listening to everybody that has something to say. Listen to them. Try it. If it doesn't work, respectfully, just let it go. But always listen to someone if they've got something to say. Yeah. That would be my number one advice, honestly. And what was the – was there any sort of – was there ahas for you where you're like, I just – someone told me something and I just flat out didn't know that at all and it's hugely beneficial. Do you have any examples of of that kind of insight or coaching you may have got where you just – shit, that just blew my doors off. I did not even have a clue about that. Mm, great question. Um, look, Roger McDowell was – was pretty pivotal um, early on in my career um, because I was so raw when I came back. Um, so he was kind of a sinker slider guy. So we would we would just talk all BP about pit sequencing and and you know um, he basically showed me taught me what to look for and what to feel for when I'm on the mound so that when I do feel a little bit off that I'm able to adjust myself rather than relying on him having to run out every time. Mm-hmm. So uh, we would just we would just sit there and just jive all BP about, about everything. Um, he would teach me that if you ever feel like you've lost your breaking ball, just don't worry about so much how big it is. Just get it to the spot you want at the percentage that you can consistently get it to that spot and then slowly increase as you get more comfortable. So, you know, most most pen sessions, I'd sit there and I'd start my slider at 70% and I'd gradually work it up. And if I got it to 80, 85% before I got in the game, I knew I was going to be set. I knew I was going to be locked in as soon as I got out there. Um, he also taught me how to, how, how to go to the bullpen, like how to – the phone rings, Moylan, get up, but you're not ready – you don't need to be ready for, until the fourth hitter. How to warm up, how to – Fuck! How to how to take a shit in the middle of the game when you know that when honestly when you know that you're not going to go into the game, he would teach me that okay, this is going to be your situation. So if you're going to take a dump, do it in the second, third inning, get it out of the way because you're probably not going to pitch until the sixth. So it's the tiny little things and it's the small things. It's and it's stuff off the field too. Like I Stu, I think we spoke about it when when you came to the hotel, but it was like I didn't know how to get my bags. I didn't know who to tip. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what time to show up. Like it was, it was, there's no instruction manual when you get to the big leagues. It's, you've got to just hope that somebody has the goodness in them to grab you and say, hey, tip the guy $5 a bag when he brings your bags up to the room. Don't get your own bags because you look cheap as shit. Um, this, uh, like every, all that sort of stuff. Um, don't be the first one on the bus. Always carry beers. I know you're 27, but you're still a fucking rookie. So grab the beers. If someone asks you for a beer, give it to them. So that went down really well for a 27-year-old. Like with my personality, I received that. I didn't butt heads with anyone when they were telling me to go get them a beer and stuff like that. But I, I don't know. That's the – well, sorry, just programming note. I met Peter at a hotel to do an interview. There was no dalliance. I um, just wanted to clear that up. <laughs> Although, if I had to play uh, my cards right, who knows? Um, but I do true, think – Very that, true. I'd never played pro ball. I played college baseball. And I think the bit that I think Australians do pretty well is the shit-talking clubhouse, camaraderie, everything's fair game. And, yeah, you don't want to be slugging around carrying beers for people at 27. But, 
you kind of the Australian no. way is you're nothing and you'll never be anything until right. you prove you are. So I guess that probably helps. But I, yeah, I think that's the other interesting piece. You sort of see, I don't know what it's like in the US. Well, in the US, kids typically leave to go to college once they finish high school. In Australia, I think we're just pushing the envelope now and kids are staying at home until they're 25 or 26. Um, but it's that right. part of how do, if you're a 17, 18-year-old and you, you sign a pro deal and you're leaving from Australia, it's it's figuring out how to live and cook and eat right and and yeah, how do you how do you be a pro? Like you can go out and tie one on and have a big night, but that has to I sure did. You need to be ready to go the next day. And that's the stuff that yeah. it, there's no handbook for that. So so it's uh, it's always that's pretty right. interesting. Um so you were sort of um pushing for time here, but I kinda wanted to you you I've got as much time as you need, mate, honestly. whatever you want. Well, I kind of just wanted to wrap it up by talking about the the Aces and your Australian Baseball League experience. You're, you're taking over as the manager this year. Um, what I am. What What can we expect? The team. The the word on the street is the Aces are pre- prepared to go after players and 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 spend a bit of money. But what, what can we expect from you as you you dip your toe into the management side of things? I will just try and be um, as. Brian Snitka, Bobby Cox-like as I can possibly be because I was lucky enough. And Don Mattingly. I had some really cool managers uh, and Ned Yost. Like all the managers that I played for over here were so laid back and so um, – I guess when you're in the big leagues, you've got no choice but to be relaxed. But there are those hotheads like a La Russa. Like a La Russa, I would imagine, runs a pretty hard clubhouse still. Um, but – the managers that I had were so laid back and they, they had open door, you know, sounds cliche, but I don't want anyone to feel like they can ever not come talk to me. Um, we're going to have a lot of fun. You can be assured of that. And, you know, I feel like I still know how to play the game the right way. So, so I, I'm guessing that managing a baseball team is the same as managing a business in, in that when you're at the top, your job is to make sure everyone's, ready to go and, and is performing at an optimal. So most of it is, I'm assuming, most of and this would be your experience from these managers, is what do they need to do? What can they take off your plate to allow you to perform and, and be ready and, and communication? I'm, I'm guessing it's the same the world over. Exactly. And especially when you're at home. When you're at home, you have the support of six coaches. Mm. So, um, you know, the guys like Shanna and, you know, Kelly Zeblin and uh, and Deebs, who's down there, and, and you know Lloydie is going to be down there this year. So uh, Dean Marnell gets down there and and, and coaches, and um, so it's it's a good group of guys, and it's uh, uh, everybody's there to help. And Shanna's a hitting guru. He's he's learnt from <coughs> excuse me, he's learnt from the same guys that the guys learn from in the, the big leagues. So he can break down a swing as good as anyone. So it's a it's going to be a fun environment, but it's going to be a professional environment too because I was the guy that could could flick that switch and have as much fun as anyone in the bullpen. But the minute my name was called, I was I had a, a serious face until my job was done, and I feel like you can do that as well. It's a little tougher to lock in for nine innings. I understand that, but if I can do it with all my ADD, I think my players can as well. <laughs> and what's the um the, the composition of the team, I may be too early to sort of have an understanding of the roster. It's maker. really early, yeah. But w- what's yeah. what are your what's the mandate to sort of infuse 
sort of the next wave of talent, young players through the team? Is it are we going to win now, or is it a development piece as well? And how do you blend the two? That's the that's the biggest thing, right? So we're trying to we're trying to get as much of the development kids around the big league guys. Like last year, we had Delman Young out there, we had Brian Flynn out there, we had these guys. Myself was out there. We've got guys that have played AAA um, and had a lot of success. So we want these young kids asking questions and learning at the same time. So we run training sessions with a lot of the development kids, um, and the 16s and 18s trains. We all train at the same facility, so. We, I try. I'm going to try and get a, a, a marriage between everybody, so that everyone's learning and everybody's asking questions, and it's not just, oh, no, we've got to stay over there, and you've got to. This is the aces, and that's baseball Victoria, and I don't want any separation. Like I feel like it's such a small community already. We don't need to separate what is already small. Like let's keep what what is tiny, and if we can stay as one, we can fucking actually be a force. Yeah, and I think that's the whole. Like, how do you get this expertise and spread it across everyone? And it's not, it's not just the elite people who get it. It's everyone who wants it can access it. I think that's what's going to grow things out and let kids see that right. they can do this. Um, I'm sure you're looking forward to. Quarter- well, look at like, and it's his. Sorry, I'll just one last comment, and I'm, actually, I probably shouldn't have raised his name because he's he's in a bit of trouble right now. But um, someone that the likes of Trevor Bauer before he. Uh, got in trouble, showed people that you can basically train yourself to become a pitcher if you don't have all the physical talent. So there's measurables out there now that you can read and there's uh, there's YouTube videos that you can watch and you don't have to go and pay someone $100 an hour to teach you how to throw a curveball. There's information I learn. I still go now and I look at YouTube and I, and I try and teach myself analytics and I teach myself what's good and what's a good spin rate and what matters and, and I'm still trying to learn now because I want to be informed and I think that's that's important that there's still guys like me that is are willing to embrace the new but still have a, a little bit of the old stuck in them as well. Mm. All right, well, it's probably time to wrap up. Uh, last thing, um, you're staring down the barrel of uh, probably a 14-day quarantine when you come back to Australia. Um Good. Second one. Any tips on getting through a fourteen-day quarantine in a hotel? Uh, it's fucking miserable. Um, I I don't know what I'm going to do, especially if I'm lucky enough to be able to bring my family, which I'm really hoping I can do. It's going to be me, my wife, and a seven-year-old in a hotel room for fourteen days. So you can bet that I'm going to be very, very, very fired up by the time I leave. <laughs> That sounds uh, <laughs> that sounds unbelievable, Pete. Really sounds, appreciate your time. I'm going to yeah. put the music on and then eventually turn off the record okay. button. Um, thanks very much, and we'd love to have you back. Appreciate it. Anytime, Stu.